If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In recent years, there's been an absolute sea change in the study of empire. But what are the challenges of grappling with often difficult imperial history? And how does it shape our understanding of the world today? This year marks the 50th anniversary of the Wolfson History Prize, which has been awarded to standout history books since 1972. As part of the celebrations, we've teamed up with the Wolfson Foundation to bring you some fascinating panel discussions on some of history's biggest topics. Today's discussion, which was recorded live at London's V&A Museum, is all about the history of empire. Chairing the discussion and introducing the speakers was historian Sir David Canadine, Dodge Professor of History at Princeton, a trustee of the Wolfson Foundation and the chair of the judges of the Wolfson History Prize. I'm David Canadine. I'm a historian of modern Britain, modern America, the monarchy, the aristocracy, and occasionally, though I blush to mention it in such distinguished company, I try to write about empire, but they do it far better than me, which is why they're going to be talking this evening uh, much more than I am going to be. So let me, before we get to the serious business of hearing from our colleagues here, let me tell you who they are. Uh, Sudhir Hazari Singh was born in Mauritius. He's been a fellow and tutor in politics at Balliol College, Oxford, since 1990. He's written extensively about about French intellectual and cultural life. Uh, His books include The Legend of Napoleon uh, and How the French Think. He's won a variety of prizes and he won the Wolfson History Prize uh, for 2021 for Black Spartacus, The Epic Life of Toussaint Louverture. Toby Green has worked widely with academics, musicians and writers across Africa, organizing events in collaboration with institutions in Angola, Ghana, Mozambique, Sierra Leone, and the Gambia. Uh, His work has been translated into 12 languages. Uh, He has written widely on the rise of the slave trade in Western Africa, Um, and his book, A Fistful of Shells, West Africa, From the Rise of the Slave Trade to the Age of Revolution, was shortlisted for the Wilson History Prize in 2020. Olivet Hotel uh, is about to become, on the 1st of August, um, a distinguished professor of the legacies and memory of slavery uh, at the School of Oriental and African Studies here in London. She was born in the Cameroon, brought up in Paris, and educated at the Sorbonne. Uh, she has held positions at Bath Spa and then at Bristol University, where she was the first professor of history at the university to examine issues of slavery. She's been a vice president of the Royal Historical Society, a judge of the Man Booker Prize. She's on the research committee of the V&A, and she has written a range of books, including African Europeans and Untold History. I'm very eager to get our guests to talk about how they see the writing of the history of empire, or I ought to say of empires, how it's evolved over the 50 years which the anniversary of the Wilson Prize enables us to think about in a retrospectively structured 
way. When I first learnt about the British Empire in the 1960s, it was a school textbook by a man called S. Reed Brett. And it was all about what a wonderful thing the British Empire was because the whole purpose of the British Empire was to create the British Commonwealth and everybody thought that the evolution towards responsible government was terrific and so we should all be very pleased with ourselves. I think it's fair to say that such a narrative now would not entirely pass muster. Um, and I'd be very interested to hear from each of you how you situate your own work in the evolving um, development of writing about the history or the histories of uh, empires now. Toby, can I start with you? Thank you very much, David, um, and good evening, everybody. Um, I think, well, I'm a historian of pre-colonial Western Africa. Um, my, most of my research uh, has been done in the area of what you might call Greater Senegambia. Uh, from the 15th, 14th, 15th centuries through to the early 19th century. Um, and so I think my approach really in my research is really to start from there and from the sources which are produced there. Uh, so that would include a lot of oral histories uh, and the ways in which they pr produce histories which speak of the, the important themes and topics which have created the historical consciousness and experience of peoples in that region. And then in a way, I, my, as a historian of empire, I, I work as much on, on West African empires, Mali and Songhai, as on European empires. And I would say that's another shift, you know, and we've seen quite a lot of that in the last 10 or 15 years, the work of some colleagues on, for example, the Comanche Empire, uh, work on Central Asian empires. So I think the bro a broadening out of the of, of what kind of empires are studied and, and deemed historically relevant is also very significant. Yes, I think that evolution from the history of a single empire, normally the British Empire, to the history of empires more broadly and comparatively is a big and significant development. Um, Sadia, your thoughts on how writing the history of empires has evolved over the last 50 years and the part you've played in that, um, what, what are your thoughts and recollections and observations? When I first approached this uh, subject um, of writing about the Haitian Revolution, and the first thing I did was to look at what had been written about it in France. And for a long time, the way that that story had been told um, by mainly French metropolitan historians was um, a story which sort of saw uh, events in Haiti in the late, late 18th, early 19th century as broadly uh, reactive or derivative. Um, in other words, you had big events happening in France, the revolution, and um, Haiti, insofar as it was talked about, was uh, an aftershock, right? A, a tremor, if you think of uh, that kind of metaphor. Um, and that was true both for people who thought the Haitian Revolution was a good thing, following in the footsteps of the great French Revolution, or um, those who thought it was a bad thing, um, and there were more of those, as it were, um, among kind of conventional French historians. But, but they had in common that France was the epicenter and, uh, and Haiti was just something almost incidental. And what's been changing over the past 15 years, and I've played a modest part in this, is to basically invert that way of looking at it and to take what happens in what was then called Saint-Domingue, before it became the independent state of Haiti, to put what was happening in Saint-Domingue at the heart of the understanding and of the analysis, and to realize that actually it was the French Revolution that was peripheral to what was happening over there. 
Well, that's certainly decentering with a vengeance or turning things around in a very uh, significant way. Olivet, your thoughts on this? When I started uh, working on the history of slavery, the transatlantic slave trade and slavery, the focus was mainly on um, abolition and the discourse of um, um, saviorism and humanitarianism. And there was no particular focus um, done or link done between what was happening in the Caribbean and how that influenced actually abolition and, and, and slavery. But also what was interesting for me to look at was who gets to write those stories and those histories and how it has been transmitted from one generation to the other. In other words, how narratives about empire have shaped our understanding of uh, our society and the question of nationhood and citizenship and uh, belonging and so on and so forth. So who gets left out and who gets integrated into the grand narrative of the nation. My PhD was actually about history, but also about memory and memory studies and how the question of memory also had an impact on the kind of archival material that we, we tend to choose as historians. Uh, memory of those who are not there, memory of the voices who are not heard and how those voices, in particular people of African-Caribbean descent, those voices um, were able to still tell a story that was still accurate, even if it was not supported by what Europeans, uh, European archival material was, tell was telling us. And I've seen in the last few years, a uh, few decades, that um, the legacies of the past are as much, are as important in the story of empire, in the writing of empire, as the, uh, the empire itself, as in the 19th century itself. Well, I think one of the things that uh, each of you have drawn our attention to, and it would be good to hear more from you on this, is how far the changes in the writing of history of empire are in part because different people are now writing those histories, and in part because those different people writing different histories are using different sources. Sadia, could we start with you on that? Because you said you began reading the French sources on Haiti, and then you shifted. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Well, there were two things, I think. Um, one is that um, most of the literature written by French historians for a very long time was only based on French archival yep. sources. So um, my French colleagues didn't want to go and read uh, things that were in, 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 Brit in British or in American uh, or in Spanish archives. And in fact, if you really want to understand the history of uh, such a complicated place as Saint-Domingue in the 18th and early 19th century. This was a place where there was a big Spanish presence, where there was a massive British uh, military intervention, you know, which went disastrously. And so, you know, you need to, you need to go to the British archives to, to, to figure that out. Uh, and the Americans, because they're, they're very close by, Saint-Domingue is not very far away. So they had a, a great and kind of active interest in what was going on there. So if one really wants to understand uh, what everybody was thinking and, and, and indeed doing, one has to go to all of these different archives. And, and that's, to a limited extent, what I tried to do. Mm -hmm. Because one of the annoying things about the way the history of Saint-Domingue had been written before, and that was what I was saying earlier on, is that when it came to narrating the events, the events were always narrated from a French mm. um, uh, settler or a, a metropolitan perspective. And even when it came to my main character, who is Toussaint Louverture, who is this wonderful revolutionary figure who emerges in the late 18th century and becomes the leader of the revolution, even though there were a lot of sources um, 
of, of, of him, you know, speaking, um, writing reports, uh, uh, producing letters, there was a tendency to ignore them uh, and, and instead cite what other people were saying about him. So that's what I tried to do in the book, to actually look, try and rec recreate, as it were, his own vision of what the world looked like, rather than relying on what other people had said. Olivet, what's your, uh, uh, what are your thoughts on this notion that in order to um, come to a, a richer um, and better understanding of empire or empires, we need different sources from those that have all too often been used um, and different voices and different ways of finding evidence. I mean, some of your work has involved those sort of activities. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yes, I think the diversity of sources is important, but even with the sources that I have been trained to work on, which were uh, European archival material and uh, European sources, there are always things that are, um, again, I'm going to quote this, this, this man that um, I have a, a strange uh, relationship with, Michel de Certeau, a philosopher, um, who says they are always things that are lurking on the outskirts of discourse. So what is not said is what interests me. And sometimes in those uh, European archives, you have stories about um, conquest, of course, what they did, how they, they bought so-and-so uh, and what they, they managed to get out of this deal. But there's also the, the, the journals that tell you about their family stories and their family histories and how they are linked um, to the people that they have enslaved, for example, and the layers of collaborations, coercion, and the, the, the kind of conversations that are about the multiple um, identities and narratives. And I'm interested in those because mm. these are not part of, when you talk about empire, we think about the bigger questions, whereas actually these were humans who were interacting with other populations. Right. Yeah. Toby, I mean, in terms of the question of, you know, the new range of sources which have been used. I think an interesting anecdote I can tell you is that my first visit to one of the archives I work most in, which is in Lisbon, in the, the, the overseas archive there, in 2003, I received reader ticket 695, which meant in the previous 30 years since it was formed, about an average of 30 new people a year had been visiting that archive, which when you consider that many of them were family members looking for materials on relatives, is really a small number. Mm -hmm. Um, but everything changed in, that, in those years because of the changes in Brazil. Uh, the Brazilian government's law, meant, which meant that African history had to be taught in schools, meant that suddenly a huge number of Brazilian researchers started coming to Lisbon. And actually that's really transformed the field of pre-colonial African history because many of the researchers in, often now teaching in the US who really are publishing a lot in this area are Brazilian. They bring a different lens and they've used a whole range of archives. So that has really transformed in many ways, I think, the nature of the field. The other thing that, you know, I've certainly tried to do in my own work, and particularly in A Fistful of Shells, is, is try to broaden a source base, work with oral histories, work with music, for example. I've done quite a lot of work with musicians, uh, because often it's those sources which, in fact, contain memories and contain, to talk about memory here and, and the way in which this reflects in afterlives of empire. And, and that, that's fundamental, because history is, after all, you know, as a subject as practicing historians i think we'd all recognize history is the interaction of the past and the present we're writing about the past but we're writing in the present and the way and way in which we do that and the memories of that history influence how we approach those 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 materials and sources i do think this notion of uh, i mean which when i was starting out was i don't think anybody ever thought of that one of the ways of approaching the histories of empires is oral history now of course that's 
that's not going to get you back to the maritime empires of the early modern period, I suppose. But um, certainly, I mean, a friend of mine who's working on dance in colonial Kenya, she can talk to people in Kenya who either remember or who were told things that they've also remembered. And I wonder how far oral history has become uh, an important area of inquiry in what, uh, when I was growing up, was a rather arid, as it were, history of empire written from official documents in the public record office uh, in the case of the British Empire. So, I mean, uh, how do you think, uh, Olivet, that um, oral history has enriched your own work and enabled you to broaden the number of voices literally that are heard? Well, I, I rely a lot on oral history, uh, actually, and um, uh, oral history is not uh, straightforward. Uh, people transmitting their, their stories and then we're having that, those stories back. So within the course of the transformation, the transmission, there are a lot of things that are happening that are influenced by the background, the political scene, but also the family history. Just to give you an example, um, I was involved in a project that looks at um, the legacies of the past in slavery in a few uh, African countries. For example, in, uh, in Senegal, where um, the legacies are based on names and, um, and, and names from people who are of, of, um, of slave descent. So they will tell you a different story than the ones that, 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 that is told by those who are in charge, who are descended from, um, well, the powerful ones and the powerful kings and queens. So even within that oral history, there are layers of, um, shall we say discrimination, but layers of, of power hierarchy that are at play, and I find it absolutely fascinating. Sudhir, so presumably there was no one alive in Haiti who could remember the revolution about which you wrote, but was there a strong sense across the generations of oral recollection? I mean, did that figure in your researches? It figured in, in two ways. I mean, the most important way in which it figured was through reading... Um, 19th century Haitian historians. People writing in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, they were the ones who did the heavy lifting mm. and talked, for example, to many of the survivors of the Revolutionary Wars. One of the best still uh, histories of that period is by a Haitian historian called Thomas Madieu. And he writes these fantastic accounts of individual battles, very, very fine-grained. And when one reads it, one thinks, well, you know, he wasn't there, and, and there were no records. So he got all of that information mm. from um, the veterans. And military veterans are always a kind of great source. Um, I mean, sometimes a bit tendentious, of course, but you have to, so you have to kind of sift through. But so a, a, lot of, a lot of the information from that kind of 19th century Haitian historiography um, comes from uh, survivors. But... Um, when I visited Haiti, um, and I did so while I was writing the book, I wasn't able to spend as long there as I would have liked to. But one of the things I was very struck by is how the memory of the revolutionary era is still alive. Um, mm. When you go to particular locations, people still talk about um, uh, either events or, or, or great figures um, uh, who were associated with those localities. And I suppose a third way, uh, and this is something that I uh, learned a lot from and, and tried to integrate it in, in my own writing, is um, anthropologists have done um, really wonderful work on um, the history, particularly of spirituality and religion. 
um, because there was a lot of that going on in the late 18th and early 19th century, a lot of it coming from Africa, of course, but a lot of it um, sort of created there in that space, uh, a sort of fusion of different uh, religious elements. And really good anthropological work has been done um, to sort of tease out how, for example, the big foundational moment in the Haitian Revolution it happens in August 1791 at a ceremony called at Boacaimont, as it's called. And the Boacaimont ceremony is like a sort of, it's almost like a founding myth for the Haitian people. It's the moment from which the revolution started. There are no records. Nobody knows exactly what happened there. There are a lot of stories. But what you can do, um, and what um, uh, uh, Haitian anthropologists have done wonderfully, um, is to interrogate music, poetry, oral traditions, and actually show how you can identify very clear patterns, um, even in the 21st century, and reconstruct what you think might have happened at that time. I think that, that point is, of course, like all of your remarks, very well made, and I certainly um, recognize your observation that interviewing military veterans is a good idea. When G.M. Trevelyan wrote his Garibaldi books in the 1900s, he interviewed lots of the people who had been involved in Garibaldi's campaigns. Um, I mean, we're not the first generation, actually, to have invented oral history. And it's rather helpful that there are records of these earlier interviews that did take place. I mean, you've all spoken with great eloquence about multiple voices, uh, a broader range of sources, reading archives against the grain, being sufficiently immersed to know where the silences are and to have some sense of what that might be telling you. Where does that leave, um, perhaps it just leaves it dismasted and hold below the waterline, any attempt now to write synoptic histories of empire of a sort that were once fashionable, is that still a, a possible or viable project? Should it be? Can it be? Shouldn't it be? Toby, you're looking immensely yes, thoughtful I mean, about I, that. I, I, I'm sure people will carry on writing such empire histories. I've absolutely no doubt they will. I mean, I think the, the issue with the type, the, I think the discussion we've had so far is, you know, the, the work that we've all talked about is, is slow. You know, it's very painstaking and it takes a very long time. And that is something which, uh, within the modern structures of academic life and professional life in general, you know, modern academic and professional life is not slow. Uh, no. and, in, and in order to progress, you need to be able to be seen to doing things quickly. And that is a tension and a real problem, I think, within the academic structure in terms of how to provide time and space for this work to be done because it takes a long time and uh, it's uh, painstaking it require, it, and it really requires constant immersion and re-immersion in sources of different kinds and you know I, I obviously have been extremely fortunate to be able, be able to spend that time uh, but you know I am concerned as to how easy that's going to be uh, going forward. Oliver, does it worry you that these are big projects that uh, academic life in Britain is not as sympathetic to supporting as ideally it ought to be? Yes, it does worry me because it's, uh, it clips the wings of so many fantastic potential research that could be led by, by many people. We are crushed under the weight of um, administration and other duties. But more interesting perhaps for me to observe the books that are being born and that are coming out in, in our uh, um, libraries and in our uh, bookstores that are attempts to, to capture what... Mm 
empire means. And I think it's symptomatic of something deeper, which is might be a sense of anxiety, but also the need to, to have something that provides all the solutions. We know that we, we can't have that, but there's a need that there's a need to, to go back to simplicity and to have a single, almost singular um, narrative that is comforting for the population. And I think this is where we should look into why is that that we need that at this point in time. It's always seemed to me that it's the predilection of politicians and pundits to want to tell us that the world is very simple and actually it's our job to say, no, the world is very complicated and you ignore complexity at your peril. So, Sadia, you're not going to write a history of the French Empire by the sound of it. The thing that I find that I've learned, because I'm learning all the time and it was a great journey to actually do this last project, the thing that I was... I, I left... One is always slightly frustrated at the end because one feels... Um, there could have been so more one could have done. The mo one of the most frustrating things I found um, by the time I'd finished this last project was that it had almost no comparative dimension. Mm. And, and my book is basically a story of resistance to enslavement, right? And, and I ended up writing it as if this was the major and the grand and almost the kind of unique instance of this. And of course, by the time I'd, I'd written and, and published it, uh, I'd realized that, of course, it was just one of many such examples. And therefore, what I, what I think, in a way, it makes it even more complicated mm. because I think what we urgently need, and which is very hard because now uh, the, the sheer volume of information is, is, is so great, is we need more comparative uh, work on, on empires. Mm. Because to take the Haitian example, there was a uh, 50, 60 year long um, autonomous state in Brazil in, in the 17th century, in Palmares. Uh, so, you know, you, you could tell the story of the Haitian Revolution as starting in Palmares, as uh, developing in um, Dutch Guyana in the 18th century um, and in Jamaica. Um, and then um, culminating, perhaps, in, in Haiti. And then that would be a really interesting uh, sequel, perhaps. Well, we've all spoken with great personal knowledge on the issue of ranges of sources, widening the ranges of sources, um, and uh, different people writing different sorts of histories. But I suppose something else to throw into the mix, just to make it even more complicated, is... We appear to have lived through an era of globalization. And this notion then of either comparative histories of empires or maybe global histories of empires, how, how is that to be done? Or is it simply something not worth trying? What, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I was uh, somebody who's trained to do comparison between the British and French ways and uh, working on the slave trade and slavery. I, I think it's worth doing still. And what is interesting for me is that um, I'm currently working on 15 ports that made empire through slavery. When you look at those ports, they're never alone because these are the locus for battles between other empires. Mm. So you end up talking about other people in other empires anyway. So I think it's an interesting um, um, approach. Yeah. Toby? Yeah, I mean, I think comparative approaches are, you know, absolutely fundamental. You know, I think the, the, these historical processes did not happen in isolation. They happened in interconnection. And, and clearly, 
that you you are you know to to, for, to the, the old form of doing you know histories of the British Empire, histories of the French Empire, histories of the Portuguese Empire came out of a of a nationalist framework yeah. effectively. And you know, the, as you say, we've lived through David, we lived through fifty years of globalization, which has produced a, a transnational framework and 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 those kinds of nation nation centered approaches. And of course, that and to come back to a point which you you made just now, Olivetti, you know, that then creates a sense of a need for a sort of simplified narrative which will somehow explain things and of course I'm afraid it's not our job to provide that I think the comparative approach is probably what we need really. So dear one of the impacts of globalization is just to reduce the size of Europe basically um, and, and that's not not been a bad thing mm. I mean Europe has an important role to play in in the history of of everything including empire but often that role has been played alongside other actors. And what, what I think the emphasis on globalization has done is to bring to the fore the importance of those other actors. Um, and sometimes also to show, perhaps to reveal the true nature of um, what was happening at the center. That dichotomy that we commonly use between center and periphery is sometimes misleading. Mm. Um, because sometimes the so-called periphery is where all the real action is happening. Mm. And sometimes the, the so-called periphery is where um, the tensions that are really present at the, at, the, at the heart of the empire are being played out. And I think with, with the French case, I mean, in, in, in the part of the story that I've been working on recently, you see that most vividly with the restoration of slavery by Napoleon, right? Um, because what happens there is that, I mean, there are all sorts of complicated reasons why Napoleon does this, and he does this for political reasons that are um, that are domestic and European. But it happens in, um, in 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 a colonial setting. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So that when we're studying Pitt the Younger, for example, we will also study what thoughts he had about slavery mm. and not, as <clears throat> continues to be the case up till now, treat him as an abolitionist. You know, he wasn't. He, he was the one who paid for the British intervention to restore slavery in Santa domingue That's just a little example of how if you separate these things out, you end up with a completely truncated vision of what um, the historical narrative should be. One other subject which it seems to me is coming into focus um, as, in a sense, we get more distance on the European decolonization of the 1950s, 60s and 70s is the strange relationship between empires and the nation state. I mean, it, it is extraordinary to think that when all those European statesmen went to the Congress of Berlin and essentially drew lines on the map of Africa and said, this is how we're going to arrange things going forward, um, those lines have held and that there seemed to be a... a an expectation, an understanding, a resignation perhaps, that these arbitrarily created colonies would somehow become self-sufficient, autonomous nation states. And it seems to me in retrospect that's beginning to look more and more extraordinary the further we get some distance on that. I wondered if any of you had any thoughts on that. Well, I can talk about the area I know best in West Africa, which is 
the Senegambia region. So you'd have there, first of all, you know, if you were going to have a nation state, the countries of Gambia, Senegal, and Guinea-Bissau would be one country. Yeah. Uh, because as, as a Gambian friend said to me once, talking of Senegal, the only language we don't have in common are English and French. Yeah. Um, and, and yet, so what happens, though, of course, is, is something rather more complex, which is that most people ignore the bound borders of the nation state. There are, in fact, for example, between a village I know in Senegal and across the border in Guinea-Bissau, there's no border post, but there's a bus which will go and people go across and there's no border check of any kind. People have family on all sides of it. The structure of the nation state exists for political purposes, fundamentally, in relationship to a global order of nation states, which often in terms of most people's experience in daily life, can have very little bearing on their own experience. But of course, why do those different nation states exist? Well, because of course, you know, three different colonial languages, English, French, and Portuguese, uh, three different bureaucracies, and, 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 and therefore, uh, this very complex relationship of, of neo-colonialism and the way in which that relates to institutional frameworks of governance in the 21st century. And Oliver, you were born in Cameroon, which is a particular example, I think, of these strange consequences of the the kind of um, uh, odd way in which Africa was carved up, because there's more than one Cameroon, or there was. Definitely. I was thinking about that, because um, if we remove the line, then we'll have Nigeria and Cameroon um, together. However, because uh, the, uh, the German were later, but they were newcomers in the 19th century, they drew their own line, which means that, um, that in Cameroon, so French and English are the, um, the national kind of languages, but the second language is German usually. Mm. And there's a close, very, very closeness with, with, with Germany. So what we see with the Anglophone, what is called, by the way, the Anglophone War, is interesting because it's, it's, um, it's presented along the lines of Anglophone and therefore languages where actually the division is much more complex than that because it's along the lines of um, kind of regional in different cultures. Mm. So the, the, the line is indicative of something uh, deeper and we haven't moved from, from those divisions. Empire and colonization and the legacies are still very much in place and, and those conversations are, are endless and they're actually at the, at, the, at the core of certain wars at the moment. Yeah. And Haiti, a partitioned island? I mean, Haiti is a rather good example, unfortunately, of how um, formal independence doesn't mean um, uh, control over resources or, or autonomy. Because, of course, once, once the French were militarily defeated, they then um, decided to basically make the Haitians pay, literally, for their freedom. And so what successive French governments did in the 1820s and 1830s was to make the Haitian government pay reparations to the slave owners, the French slave owners. So the economist Thomas Piketty has calculated this would amount to, in today's money, um, 30 billion euros, mm. which was paid to, to the French settlers. I mean, the British did the same um, a, a, little, a little later. That's one, way, that's one terrible way in which the, the aftermath of independence was very problematic. And, and many, many Haitians um, and, and many um, impartial observers would argue that the, the difficult history that Haiti has had in the 19th and early, early 20th century has been a direct consequence mm. of having to devote you know, about 40% of your, of your annual GDP to repaying the debt. Mm. So it makes life very, um, 
very complicated. I'm also a child of, I was born in Mauritius. So Mauritius has this great distinction of having been, quote unquote, discovered first by the Portuguese, settled by the Dutch, then taken over by the French, and then finally by the British. So we have uh, multiple colonial mm. legacies that we're still um, grappling with. So back to you, Olivet, on that, I think you rightly helped to segue to this whole issue, which of course is very current in all sorts of ways, of legacies of empire. Um, what are they? Um, and what's the historian's job, um, do you think, in trying to um, add some perspective to conversations about that? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I, I think that when we talk about the legacies, sometimes people tend to think that they are direct legacies, that you know, there are legacies that are harder to grasp. We were talking earlier about statues and, and monuments. These are direct legacies and the celebration of people from the past. And these are, in a way, tangible. Um, when you talk about racism, some people would, would argue that it doesn't exist anymore or it's over. So it's more difficult to grasp. And for some people, uh, they're not a direct link. There's no direct links between the past, the colonial past. I know extraordinary, but they think there's no direct link between the colonial past and nowadays racism. However, we can, as historians, show how, for example, um, laws and in particular uh, in law departments, the bills that were put in place were put in place for certain to, to segregate certain populations at a certain point in time and how therefore that had impact on so-and-so um, region and so-and-so uh, community. So there are ways for us to uh, trace these back and these are very important. It's also important for us, I think, for us historians to, it's very hard not to, but to be dragged into certain discussions that are uh, drawing a, a direct line between past and present because then we 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 um we miss certain steps that help us understand how we get from a to to b and yeah it's it's a it's a hard job but i i think it's a fascinating one and an important one i'm very struck by how how much historical depth there is to the present much more than um we often talk mm. about or think about um for example i mean just to give you two examples uh from, from, from sort of recent French history. Um, when you look at what's happening in France at the moment, the rise of the extreme right, um, you know, and, and, it's, and it's very possible that at the next presidential election there may be a, a, a far-right president who is elected. I mean, where, where does that come from intellectually and culturally? Um, the Algerian war happened, you know, um, not very long ago, and a lot of the tensions that are being manifested in France today come from a rise out of the kind of tensions and dynamics that, that were produced by the Algerian war. And, and, and so thinking about how that war can live on in, 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 in complex ways, it's not just a sort of, as, as Olivet was saying, it's not just a sort of direct uh, 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 survival. But, you know, the racism and discrimination that people um, uh, of Arab origin face in France today comes in part from that tradition. Uh, and once you explore it uh, in, in the French colonial setting, you see that that tradition is, is, a very long, uh, is a very long one. The other one is just, and this is why uh, I think studying colonial conflict still matters, um, when you look at what happened to the Americans in Afghanistan, mm. that is 
you know, I, I was just constantly being reminded of what happened to the French in Algeria and, and, and Indochina. And, you know, sadly for them, the Americans didn't study those mm. conflicts closely enough because if they had, if they had, they wouldn't have gone into Iraq or Afghanistan um, with with the degree of alacrity that they did. Mm. Um, so history is there as a colonial history is there as a reminder um, not to do so. Yes, yes. So where when, when I graduated, uh, I blush to say half a century ago, it would have been inconceivable that historians then would have had the sort of conversation that we've been having now in terms of what the major issues are in terms of writing about empire now. So let me encourage each of you to speculate. Where do you think the history of empire, where's it going next? What's it going to look like in another 50 years' time? By which time, of course, to add to the complexities of the mix, 50 years from now, um, most, for example, of the British and French colonies in Africa will have been independent nations for far longer than they were ever colonies. It might be wishful thinking, but I think the history of empire is going to look like the history of people, the history of plants, the history of objects, more, much more so than the history of the big, you know, those the big institutions and, and so on and so forth. And I find it much more exciting because um, that's a different way, again, for us teachers to do the history of empire by teaching through the history of um, spices, of, of food, of mm -hmm. plants, migration of plants. Fascinating. And I'm hoping that this is where we're heading. Yes, I think migration of peoples in lots of different ways. And I think the ecology and environmental history of empire is, well, it's already, I think, very much on the horizon. Toby, what, where do you think it's going to go? Well, I think one of the things that has certainly happened in the last 20 years, is particularly, I would say, is a focus on micro-histories as a way into thinking about the historical experience. I think there's been a shift from the history of empire as a, as a historical process to a shift on what that meant for the historical experience of individuals. And I, and I think that will, that will continue and, and, and develop. I, I, ha I have a concern about, you know, my, my last, uh, the Fistful of Shells was, was possible because of the ways in which travel and academic life had, had, be had, had become so globalized in the, in, the, in the first two decades of the 21st century. And, and you know, the, the events of the last few years means that that may be much harder in, 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 in and obviously the environmental crisis as well. So, um, that that, may, that will have an influence, an impact, but one of the things about being a historian is we work on the past and not the future, so I don't have to predict what that will be. One of the tensions that I see over the next decades is between, on the one hand, the, for want of a better expression, the return of the nation, right? Mm. I mean, the, people seem to be, um, for, for different reasons, increasingly attached to, to the idea of nation. Um, and that's something that will continue. But I think what, what studying empires tells us, and I think the more we study it, the more we will realize this, is that empires are places where people are mixed up. You know, metissage is one of the kind of primary features mm -hmm. of, all, of all imperial experiences, whether it's Spanish, Dutch, uh, French, um, Portuguese. Uh, that's just the logic mm. of the situation. It, it creates these um, rich, dynamic, original um, entities. And, you know, I'm a bit of an optimist, so I hope that that way of thinking about who we are will eventually prevail, because I think we are more than just 
creatures of one particular place. Um, yes, it, it's a curious sort of um, thought, isn't it, given uh, many other things that are written about empires, that the only way they could work uh, was that they had to somehow manage or mismanage multiculturalism. And uh, more often than not, perhaps mismanage. Well, a final teasing question from me then. Um, if one uh, ponders the state of the world today, um, there is something to bear out John Darwin's view in his book after Tamerlane. That the idea that the world is full of nation states is actually a 20th century invention, and that the default mode of human history is actually empires, not the nation state. And if we think of America and Russia and China and Iran and India, and Brazil, there's something to be said for that. I mean, empire is not over, but we do need to recognize that they're still around. So I'm now going to ask each of you very briefly to, um, as it were, answer the question you were prepared to answer that I haven't asked. But don't feel you have to, but it's an invitation to say whatever you'd like to say by way of a kind of bringing matters towards a conclusion. I, I want to talk about something that is about archival material again. We, we, I, I love the National Archives, I love regional archives, but I also find something powerful about um, community archival material and communities making their own archives and therefore creating their own history and documenting their own histories. And when I say communities, it's all communities. I also like the idea of pop-up archival material that you can bring in and share with others and then they become part of and parcel of, of, of um, the fabric of the history of the place. These are things that, by the way, we were trying to explore when I, I joined the uh, National Archive Trust. I'm not there anymore. I'm their ambassador. But think about you, each one of you, as um, potential archival donors and uh, what can happen with those well, I mean, one thing that I haven't spoken about is, you know, and I'm passionate about is, is the, the relationship this all has to education in schools. I mean, I've done quite a lot of work with, with, with curricula in this country and, and, and in West Africa, in fact. And, and I think that, you know, in, in, the, 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 the history, histories of empire are not just something that, you know, people we can discuss in a panel here this evening. They're something that also, you know, need, need to be discussed and framed and, and embedded into curricula. Uh, as part of the former formation of citizens who have an empathy with with the complex histories of of you know everybody you know who lives in, who lives in this country for example you know these histories are they are for everybody you know we all share in these histories and and i think that's something which is really important to embed in in schools uh, as, as as well as of course in in you know in universities and in and, and, and in books but so this filters all the way through i think the the public relationship to history um, as, you were, as you were mentioning, David, the, the point about um, empires not being over, um, um, the thought that came to mind is there's also an intellectual challenge that we still face. And, and, and I speak now as, as someone who's notionally a, a political scientist rather than a historian. But, but this point I'm about to make is particularly true of political scientists, which is that they still have a tendency to think of imperial or colonial history in a, in a sort of compartmentalized way. Right. Um, and, and one of the problems we face in, in, in terms of how we assimilate this knowledge is to actually spread it and to diffuse it through all aspects of um, the way in which we study, say, political institutions. So 
you know, I think the separation that still all too often exists between colonial history or imperial history on the one hand, and if you like, metropolitan history, mm. is, is a particularly pernicious one. And I hope that we will eventually be able to uh, find a way to integrate them much more effectively. So that when we're studying Pitt the Younger, for example, we will also study what thoughts he had about slavery. Mm. And not, as <clears throat> continues to be the case up till now, treat him as an abolitionist. You know, he wasn't. You know, he, he was the one who paid for the British intervention to restore slavery in Santa domingue That's just a little example of how, if you separate these things out, you end up with a completely truncated vision of what um, the historical narrative should be. Well, it pains me greatly to say that we are out of time. Uh, this is clearly a conversation that uh, could go on for much longer, and perhaps in other forms uh, it will go on. Uh, for much longer, but uh, I feel hugely privileged to have been eavesdropping on it. I think this has been a wonderful evening, and I hope you've enjoyed it very much. Thank you all. That was Professor Toby Green, Dr Sudhir Hazari Singh, and Professor Olivetta Telly speaking to David Canadine. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt.